0: Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. If you have your Bibles tonight, I want you to take those and turn first to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel will do Several passages of Scripture before the evening's over. 1 Samuel and 2 and 2 Samuel. I'm sort of continuing this kind of loose uh, thread on uh, the life of David. It's not going to go long, but maybe this will be the third one. We did, uh, it's, this is King David's search. We're calling these three messages. We did uh, King David's search for repentance. And then King David's search for true worship. And tonight is King David's search for victory. Now the problem with this sermon is... It has very narrow appeal. This sermon is only for a couple of people in the whole house. And the rest of you can check out. This is only for people who have ever had a struggle in life of any kind. It hurts me when you laugh at me. It's it's only for people who had a struggle in life. If you've if you've never had a struggle in life, this probably won't help you. Or well, it is for a few other people. It's only for people who have ever felt betrayed by a friend or a relative. Apart from that, it's not going to touch you. And this sermon, this sermon is a very narrow niche message. It's only for those people who have ever felt that they've experienced a setback or a defeat on the way to ultimate victory. So if you've, if you've never been through a struggle, you've never felt betrayed and you've never had a setback, then you can just turn your hearing aid off and sit back because this message has nothing to do with your life. But if you've ever been through anything that was difficult, a struggle, a battle of any kind, if you ever felt like you were under attack, if you've ever felt like any of your relatives or friends just jerked the rug out from under you, or if you've ever had a setback, then this message is for you. I want to read first from 1 Samuel chapter 30 while you're turning there. 1 Samuel chapter 30. I'm going to read the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 30. Now let me just give you a little preparatory word on David, I've been uh, looking somewhat in preparation for this message at the, and it finally got so discouraging I just l- let it go. But I was researching the ultimate outcome of child stars throughout history, and I just looked at some of them and the the disaster they've made of their lives—just a- absolute disasters—and uh, and beyond really what you may think. Uh, of drugs and and depression and suicide. Uh, recently, a, a pretty well-known child star killed himself, and and I, I just began to look at it, and I looked at the life, even hugely well-known child stars, that really their lives just collapsed, and I, and I thought they they just weren't prepared for the battle that was ahead. But David, in every sense of the word, could be considered a child star. Almost from his childhood. David's one of those people in history whose childhood flees away from him quickly. As a, as a child, he is he is considered sort of this odd little boy in the family. You know, he comes in from the field, he says he's you know killed a lion with his bare hands. And so do you believe that? Is that right? Is he making up stories? What if he's correct? He just the whole family, he's sort of this weird little dude. That, and they don't know what to think about him. And then he, he, he says that he has killed a bear, and his brothers mock him. I can hear him. They say, okay, look, I'll tell you what, the next time you kill a bear, you cut his head off and throw it at my feet. Then I'll believe you. I'm not believing you. So, and David kills Goliath and takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off. I can almost see like it was a movie. He throws that head at his brother's feet and says, there you go. How's that? Now from that moment on, David's life is bathed in celebrity. Bathed in celebrity. His, his childhood is gone. He becomes the, the youngest general in the history of the Israeli army, the son-in-law of the king, then a guerrilla, then a runaway, then he becomes the head of a 600 unit light cavalry battalion that is the terror of the desert. He allies himself with the Philistines. He fights the Philistines. He's embroiled in a civil war. He becomes the king of the tribe of Judah. Then he becomes the king of the unified tribes of Israel. He is, he, he spends his whole life in one struggle or another. You want to understand what it means to just absolutely rocket into fame from absolute obscurity, the youngest in a long line of unknown, not 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 well-known, not famous, not prosperous shepherd family. And he rockets to become the number one most famous man in his country while he's still in his youth. And his whole life is baptized in controversy. Even on his deathbed, he has to r- arise from the deathbed and deal with a coup d'etat. That's the life of King David. I, when I, I was a university president, two different universities, and I dealt with young people all the time. And sometimes I would meet with young people and they said, Dr. Rotten, you? I want you to lay hands on me and pray that I would that God would lay his hands on me. I'd be the choice of God. And I so, all right, I tell you what, let's do. I want you to read the life of King David because being the choice of God may not be all it's cracked up to be. You read the life of King David, and then you come back to me and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to spend my entire life in controversy, betrayal, war, bloodshed, defeat, all of the things that David went through. And then let's leave. I never had one single boy come back to me. So what I've done tonight for this message is just to identify three specific points of embattlement. Three specific places where David is caught up in a struggle. And to see if we can find out of those, with the help of the Holy Ghost, though the, the secrets of David's search for victory. In all of these messages, we talked about David's search. David's search for repentance. Because he, he didn't have a clear roadmap. David had to work through it. What His search for worship. David was experimenting with a, with a form of worship that was not not the traditional form of worship of his time and now is David's search for victory and his searched for victory because it's a lifetime of struggle what we want is to find some place of uh, of triumph over some specific foe or problem or issue and say okay there now i've got it and we think that when we when we proclaim victory satan stops and and i just want to say to you if you're not in a struggle right this moment you will be. And if you've just overcome one, it's preparation for the next one. That's not exactly good news, is it? We'll see if we can clear it up. Here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning with verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken their women captive that were in it. They slew the, They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam and Je- the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me here the ephod. And Abiathar brought there the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. Let's pray. Put your hand on your Bible and let's pray. Heavenly Father, with our hands on the word, our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking that you would speak to us in the inner person of every listener. I thank you for it in advance, God. We will be built up on our most holy faith, edified in your holy name, and say one to another, surely this night we have heard from the Lord. I believe you for it in advance, in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Ziklag is a small city under the control of the Philistines. When David flees from the face of Saul, he goes into the south of Judea, and there come out to him tough guys, tax dodgers, bail jumpers. It's not the creme de la creme of Israeli society. And they gather themselves unto David, and they become what is called the Giborim, 600-unit light cavalry That are tough. This is, this is the Israeli special forces. This is the Green Beret. And their only country is David. They're exiles. They can't go back to Israel. Their only loyalty is to David. They, they will, they will kill for him. Now listen, here's the challenge. A unit like that, totally devoted to you, totally loyal to you with no other loyalty and no other law except David. The problem is when David disappoints them, then they turn against David. So David hires his guerrilla unit out to the Philistines. And he convinces the Philistines that he is raiding into Israel with a ruse. He wants to convince the Philistines that the Israelis have nothing else to do with him. So what he will do is leave Gath and march north. Now, this is a time when there's no satellites and no television, no cell phones. So he would leave and travel north and then circle around way into the south and raid the Amalekites way to the south and loot them, then come all the way back to the north and report to Gath. And he would say, I raided this all in an Israeli town. And so the Philistines would say, oh, the the Israelites hate David. David will never go back to Israel. He's our man. We got him. And the king of the... Philistines wants to reward David, so he gives him this little town, this little village of Ziklag, and it becomes the, the headquarters of David and this very lethal group of soldiers. While David is on a raid, the Amalekites reverse the process. They raid through the north, come back, attack Ziklag from the north. While David is gone, they burn the town, take all everybody captive. It's, it's the, the Amalekites were the Boko Haram of the time and they attack, burn everything and take everybody captive. When David and his men arrive back to Ziklag, they find burned embers and their families are gone. Remember, these guys are very serious outlaws. These are some very bad dudes that David holds together with the strength of his own character, of his own leadership and, and the fact that their only loyalties to him. But now they turn on him. They blame him for this. They say, "You, somehow or another, David failed in this. This is an emotion that every single one of us has felt at one time or another, that somebody in our relationship in our world was blaming us for something that happened. How could you let this happen? If you were a better dad, we wouldn't be going through this. If you were a better wage earner, we wouldn't be going through this. If you were a better mom, if you were a better teenager, that sense of unfair attack, things that were totally out of our control, that has that now suddenly become the point, the focus of the event is not the event itself, but that people are blaming us unfairly. It's very lonely. David has nowhere to turn. There are people all over this room that have been through moments exactly like that, where wives turn to them, disappointed, hurt, wounded, and say, how could you let this happen? And what you want to say is, I, I didn't have any control over this. I remember when I was a little boy, I, I felt like my, my dad could do anything. It, it's a, a place of tremendous security. And I, I felt like nothing could happen, that the world could be hit by a meteorite, and my dad would figure out way would handle it. I felt that when I was a little boy, and I remember the first time when I, was in my, when I was in my early 40s and my dad was in his 70s, and he called me on the phone, and he said, Mark, I'd like to ask your advice about something, and I felt the, I felt the ground move out from under my feet. I said, no, no, you don't call me and ask advice. I call you and ask advice. There's that moment where suddenly everybody is looking at you where all the eyes are turned to you. The men in this room understand that. The single moms in this room understand that. There are wives in this room where things have happened, difficulty in the household, and the husband turns to you and says, how could you let this happen? And it feels unfair. And it's and it's a lonely moment. David is dealing with all of his own emotions. His wives are gone too. His family is missing. He's dealing with a sense of loss. He's dealing with his own grief in the midst of all these other people's grief. Grief can make you angry. The sense of loss can make people angry. Every pastor and every preacher in this room knows I've seen some people at funerals that were angry enough to kill somebody else. I said, wait a minute, don't close that grave yet because there's going to be two more going in there this afternoon. Because grief and loss and fear and all that can just energize the anger in in the group. And David is feeling all that. He's being falsely blamed for a disaster that he had no control over. How, do you, how did he handle it? The first key is this. I don't know exactly. It doesn't tell us exactly how David did it. It tells us what he did. It says David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, we don't have the mechanism that he used. Perhaps he walked off to the side away from everybody. All of his men gathering up rocks in their hands, hands on their daggers. Maybe David boldly turns his back to him and faces out into the desert. And he says, I know who you are. You're the same God that helped me kill that lion. You're the same God that empowered me to kill that gorilla. You're the same God that allowed me to kill everything that ever came against me. You're the same God that allowed me to kill that huge giant. You're the same God. I know who you are. He encouraged himself in in who God is. I think that striving for a mechanism here is not going to be as helpful for you as striving for the understanding of what it means. There's going to come a moment, some struggle in your life, where you're facing a situation that is out of your control, beyond your ability to fix it, where you feel lonely, isolated, grief-stricken, and afraid. I'm tired of hearing charismatic Christians say that the, the sensation of fear is a sin, Perfect love casteth out all fear, but it can't cast it out until you experience it. So the experience of fear in itself is not a sin. It's okay to say to God, I want perfect love to cast this out, but right this moment, I'm really afraid. God can handle it. So I don't know. I don't know what it felt like. I wasn't I wasn't able, I'm not able to hear or conjure that prayer. But somehow or another, David reminded himself. It doesn't say he just encouraged himself. He wasn't just clicking his heels together and thinking happy thoughts. He encouraged himself in the Lord. He reminded himself of who God is. Maybe he remembered the past. I want to urge you, Every time you receive a blessing, every time the prayer, a prayer is answered, every time that miracle is recorded in your heart, write it down. Wrap it up in lace. Put it in a bottom drawer. Hold it. And when that dark, lonely night comes where you feel unfairly alone and under attack, take it out and wrap it up and say, I remember who my God is. I remember who you are. The second thing is he kept... His eye on the real issue. This, this is what proves to me that David was a leader and not just a politician. And oh, could we have some? No. <laughs> David doesn't spend the time defending his reputation. He faces the issue that's at hand. He doesn't go out to them and say, Now, now boys, listen to me. Put, you know, put your knives away. You know, I love you, I'm facing the same thing you are. This is difficult. He bypasses all that. He encourages himself in who God is, and then he says, y'all can fight all you want to. I'm going to get the women and children. He stays on track, practical leadership to face the real issue. You can get down in the mud and wallow around with all of the emotional things that you're feeling, or you can strengthen your heart in who God is and get on with the job at hand. He says, now, you all spending too much time fighting and picking up rocks. Let's get on our horses and let's go get the girls. That's, that's real leadership, practical leadership. The third thing is this. He kept, he kept his eye. He kept his eye on the, on the ultimate prize. What is he really after? It's not really about, this is, this is a subtle and nuanced point, but stay with it. He's not really about winning. He's about rescuing those that are lost. In a sense, this is an evangelical point. That is to say, if if our mind is only on having a bigger church or more folks or whatever, which we have, a huge church, thank God. But that's not the real deal. The real deal is rescuing the lost. We, David says the deal here is not just to win this battle, it's not just to live over this. David's not just planning how to live over the disaster at ziklag. He's got his mind on the on the prize. Rescuing those that are in bondage to the Amalekites. Some of you in this very room have teenagers that are in bondage to the Amalekites. They are enslaved to Amalekite thinking. They are enslaved to Amalekite friends. They're surrounded by savages and pagans, and they are lost as a ball in high weeds. And instead of just wallowing and surrendering yourself to the grief and fear of loss, which is agonizing, All of us who have ever had a wayward child, we understand what you're feeling. But what we're saying to you is, encourage yourself in who God is, then devise a plan. How are you going to pray? How are you going to invite? And then keep your eye on the prize. The prize is not simply for you to live over this issue with your child. The prize is for your child to come home safe. So the first struggle that David has is at Ziklag. It is, the, it is the sense of the unfair attack, the accusation that somehow this is your fault. Now turn, if you will, to 2 Samuel, just a few pages, to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Between the passage we just read and this one, the civil war ended. David is won. He returns to Hebron the capital of the tribe of judah he is crowned the king of the tribe of judah saul and jonathan die in the battle at mount gilboa and now the other tribes turn to david and they say you you're the real king we need you to unify the kingdom in this civil war and we want to crown you as king of the whole nation of israel it's it's Victory! It's everything he's lived for, all he's waited for, all the lonely nights in the Judean desert, all of the time living in the cave of Adullam, all the time working as a mercenary for the for the for the Philistines. How galling and humiliating that must have been! Everything he's been through, being treated as an outlaw. Now suddenly, the whole nation crowns him king. Two Samuel chapter five. Then came all the tribes of Israel unto Hebron to speak to David, and spoke, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou was he who led us out and brought us in Israel. In other words, you were the general of the armies that gave us victory, even when Saul was king. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel, all the tribes, not just Judah, All the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Now I want you to skip to verse 17. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines also came up and spread themselves in the valley at Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Will thou deliver them under my hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will certainly deliver the Philistines into thy hand. And David came to Baal-perazim. Baal-perazim means um, uh, any, any Hebrew word that ends with I am is plural. So it means perez is a breaking out. So it means a place where God crashes out through the fence, and it does it in multiple directions. It's a very powerful word, Baal-perazim. And David smote them there and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the surging of the waters. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left there their images, and David and his men burned them. Now stop right there. This is something we have to get in our minds about satanic attack. Satan does not look at the day you graduate from high school and say, well, let him have, okay, we won't attack him today. His family's together, they're having a good time, having milkshakes, and it's good. Let them go to Shoney's and have a good time. It's, everything's good. Graduation day, let's not attack him on graduation day. The day your new baby is born, he's not going to say, well, they got a new child. Let's lay back. He's not going to say to all the minions of hell, wait, wait, wait. That's just really, that's ugly, attacking somebody on, when a newborn baby's just been born. On your wedding day, do you think that he says, oh, oh my goodness, it's, a wed- it's his wedding day. Let's not attack him today. Let's not give him that trouble today. Satan wants to destroy any happy moment that you have. As soon as the Philistines found that David had been anointed king, they said, let's don't wait. Let's don't wait for him to get any more powerful. Don't let him enjoy it. Let's attack him and let's attack him right now. So here's what I'm trying to say to you. Enjoy every moment of victory that you have. David won at Ziklag. He moved up. He became the king of Judah. He moved up. He became the king of all of Israel. But at every new level, you face a new devil. Every time you advance, Satan is coming up there with you. He's not giving in. He's not stopping. He's not waiting. He's going to keep on coming. And Satan doesn't mind losing This is what we, this is what we think. Satan doesn't mind losing. He will lose every attack that he unleashes on you. He'll lose and lose and lose and lose until he wins. He, he doesn't mind losing. David cleans their clock at Baal Perazim. He absolutely destroys them. Now look at the next verse and verse 22. And the Philistines came back again and spread themselves in the valley at Rephaim. The same place. The same place. Do you understand what this means? He's going to keep on attacking. Even the son of God. Think about the temptation in the wilderness. There are four powerful passages. The three temptations, yes. But the fourth passage is most important. Satan loses to Jesus on the first temptation. He comes back with the second temptation he loses. He comes back with the third temptation he loses. And the next verse says, and Satan retired from him until another opportunity. If Satan is not going to quit attacking the son of God in his moment of greatest victory, what makes you think you're exempt? Satan is going to come yet. I love this verse again. And the Philistines came up yet again. You might read all of David's life as David faced another battle. And David faced another battle. Yet again, the Philistines attacked. His whole life could be called yet again, the Philistines attacked. And, and says, and the Philistines came yet again. Look at verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. the same attack. And when David inquired of the Lord... He said, Thou shalt not go up, but make a circuit around behind them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be that when thou hearest the sound of the marching in the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself, for then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord had commanded, and smote the Philistines from Geba until thou comest unto Gezer. Now, listen to this. How does David win at Baal-perazim. The first thing is this. David says, I want to be sensitive to what the Lord wants done this time. When the Philistines attack the first time, he hears what God says. God says, go straight at them. Go straight at them. Just attack them. They're not expecting that. Just counterattack. They've got thousands for your hundreds. Just go straight at them. Just hold them by the nose and kick and hurt them as bad as you possibly can. And David does that. When the Philistines attack again, now listen to this, when Satan comes back again, don't assume that God's command for you is the same it was the last time. Be sensitive to God and ask him, this is the same, this looks like the same scenario. It's the same enemy. It's the same situation. What do you want me to do now? And David, God says, David, I don't want you to do it that way this time. I want you to march around behind them. Now listen to this and get in the trees behind them. I talked with a field-grade officer in the United States Army, and he said "In that that command is actually counterintuitive. He said he has marched to the far end of the valley where he has no place of, of escape and pinned himself up. And the only reason that anybody would do that, he said, is because of the guidance of God. So listen to this. When you remain sensitive to God to face a situation that looks similar to the last situation, you may receive direction from God, which is counterintuitive. It's going to require supernatural obedience to unleash supernatural results. I suspect that, as David said, we're going to sneak around behind them right at the end of the valley, the cliff up behind us, no way to escape, and we're going to hunker down in those trees right there and wait until the wind blows. I suspect that some of the men in his army... As they crept in the night around to those trees, I suspect they looked at each other and said, this boy's getting us killed. You realize that supernatural obedience, patience, sensitivity to God. Now it's night they're waiting and everybody's saying, your majesty, let's attack David. Let's go. We got to get out of these trees. We're trapped here. Let's attack them. Let's go with them. And David just says, wait, what are you waiting on? See those trees? See how they're standing still? When the wind blows, then we'll attack. There's, there's nothing about that that really makes any sense. Is the wind going to help? What I've come to the conclusion in my own life, whether this is, I've got some private word from God, that it was a physical symbol of the, of the engagement of the Holy Spirit. That this is the same wind that blew in the upper room. That God says to David, natural wind in this circumstance is actually a signal to you that the supernatural wind, the ruach, is actually engaged in the battle. That the Holy Spirit is going ahead of you. Wait until you sense my Holy Spirit move. Wait until you feel that happen. I know that when we are facing struggles, and we've all been through this. There comes that moment where panic begins to set in, and you hear the Lord say, hold, 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 wait until I give you the signal. It will stretch your nerves to the breaking point. It will, it will make you feel that you are absolutely unable to wait another moment, and you'll hear the Lord say, wait, hold, and then you'll feel the Holy Spirit move. You sense this is the divine moment. This is the moment when something's supposed to happen, and you begin to move. David's sensitivity to God, his patient obedience, he was not swayed by mortal reasoning, somebody else's or his own. And David defeated the same enemy in the same place with two totally different strategies. Now, the third attack is the worst of all. If you'll turn just a few pages to the right, 2 Samuel chapter 15. There is no wound like betrayal. That's a a deep wound. David said in the Psalms, it's not my enemy, O Lord, it's him that eateth at my right hand. That's what Jesus felt in the garden at Gethsemane. Isn't that what he said when he spoke to Judas? Betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? Stab me with a dagger. Don't kiss me and sell me out. Betrayal is the worst of all human wounds. And David struggling in his relationship with this boy, Absalom. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 7 to 14. And it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said unto the king, his father, David, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Gesher in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then will I serve the Lord. And the king, David, said unto him, Go in peace. So Absalom arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. A coup from his own son, where in Hebron, David's old capital. So he goes back to his old friends in his old capital and raises up a rebellion under the guise of religiosity. I need to go back to Hebron and pay my vows to God and turns in a coup d'etat against his own father. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem, who were invited, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything, and Absalom sent for Behithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, where he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. They've turned to Absalom. And David said unto all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. How humiliating. How humiliating. His own son foments a rebellion in his old capital, Hebron, where David had ruled all those years. He goes and turns all of his chief leaders against him. All of, his, all of his counselors, his greatest warriors have all gone to him, and he's alone, an aging king, alone, in, and has to flee. And, and it's humiliating. People even come out. A man named Shammai comes out and throws stones at him. He says, you're like an old dog sneaking out of the city and throws stones at David. Remember what I told you about Joab? Joab was always ready to bust a cap in somebody. And Joab goes for his sword. And David said, no, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Look how humble this is. David says, my own son is treating me like a dog. Why shouldn't he? Leave him alone. And the old king leaves Jerusalem, and Absalom comes and takes possession, not only of Hebron, not only of the tribe of Judah, but now of the whole nation and occupies David's palace in a horrible and humiliating way. Now, the war now turns, instead of Saul, his father-in-law, attacking David, now it's Absalom, his own son, attacking David. A new civil war. David is now involved in his second major civil war which he wins and as you remember Absalom is killed by Joab Joab has been wanting to kill him for a long time and Joab finally kills him takes uh, he's caught you remember this uh, this cat had real long hair he was real vain about his hair listen boys this is a key. cut your hair because there's somebody wanting to kill you and he's riding on his mule through the forest and his hair gets caught in the limb and he's hanging there and Joab takes three arrows and stabs him in the heart and kills him And David is returned to the throne. He grieves for Absalom, but victory is his in the technical sense of the word. He wins the war. His heart is wounded, but he wins the war. How? Now listen to this. David knows that setback is not necessarily ultimate defeat. A bend in your road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. Just because you've had a setback doesn't mean you're defeated. It just means you have a new enemy to face a new way. And David doesn't just give in. He doesn't just go in the back room and cry. This is bad, he says. I hate this. I hate this setback. But but I'm not defeated. When I was at Mount Perrin Church of God, a man there who was very wealthy, millions of dollars, he lost every penny that he had. I met with him. I said, are you all right? you going to make it? He said, "Oh yeah, I'm going to be fine." He said, "I've been here before." He said, "I was." He said, "I wasn't born to millions of dollars. I was born to absolute poverty in the hills of Tennessee." I made millions. He said, "I can do it again by God's grace." He said, "This is not the end. This is a new beginning." The second is David approached it with humility. That story about Shemai is is very important. David says, "Look." Look, my own son is on my case. Why would I kill this guy? If in the midst of a setback, we become all defensive and proud and ego-driven, we we lose the possibility of recovering from the setback. Now, where here's a key. Where did David go when he fled from Jerusalem? He went into the wilderness of Judea. Listen, David said, oh, don't throw me in the briar patch. Please don't throw me in the briar patch. The wilderness of Judea was home to David. He knew every crevice. He knew every crack. He knew every rock. He knew every stone. In other words, when you face a setback, return to the place of your strength. Return to the place of your strength. David said, when I knew God the best, I was alone in the wilderness. I'm going back to the wilderness alone with God. This is where I I knew God. I'll know him again. Furthermore, David surrounded himself with the allies that were left. Now listen to me. When you face that moment where you feel betrayed by someone, find others who are still with you and pull them close. You need Loving, encouraging, faithful allies who can help you to live through the wound of betrayal. I'm not trying to blast them in, but I do want to say, we got single moms in this room that are struggling not just to feed their babies and live their lives out, but to overcome the wound of betrayal and desertion, which has been inflicted on them by a callous man. And that's a desperate wound. That's a terrible wound. Now, I just want to say to those girls, I say to those men, you need to repent and seek your God and turn back to your household. But to the girls, I want to say to you, I'm sorry for the betrayal you're facing. Now, resort to the stronghold. Pull God in close to you and find friends, not just who will wallow in your grief, but will encourage you in the Lord. So what do we say to these things? There's the three battles. The first is this. Satan is not a quitter. I think we ought to give the devil his due. He's going to keep attacking you. you you're not going to get to a place where Satan says, well, let's, let's leave him alone. I guess he really is a good guy. I thought we could get him. He's such a good guy. He's not going to quit. I, I was reading about how the federal, I just was reading about how the federal army won the civil war. It was absolutely amazing to me. They lost almost every battle until they won. The Federal Army lost 665,000 men in the Civil War. The Confederate Army lost only 480,000 and lost the war. There are only three major battles that the Federal Army won. Gettysburg, the Seven Days, and Chickamauga. Even in those three which they won, the losses on both sides were relatively even. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not saying that the the northern army is satanic. That may go over in Georgia, but you can't sell that. (laughs) Please don't misunderstand. What I'm saying is that is a strategy that Satan will apply on you. You think when you've beaten him that he will quit but he will simply keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. I used to have a dog, the stupidest German shepherd that God ever made. I don't know. He finally, he finally proved his stupidity. He bit the front bumper of a moving truck. And it was the end of that dog. And my grief was not great. But at that time, I was pastoring a little United Methodist church, and there was a major highway, and the church was across the street from the parsonage. So I'd start across to the, to the church, to my office, or to go to the service, and the dog would start to follow me. And, and I'd yell at him, go back and lie down. Go back and lie down. He And he'd just wait till I turn my back. He'd come creeping by. Go back and lie down. And I kept, finally, I could get to the place where all I had to do was turn around, and he'd lie down. And finally, I got to where I didn't even have to lie down. I'd just do like that. Satan is just like that stupid German shepherd. He's going to keep coming, and you got to keep fighting. He's not going to stop. He's not going to just lie down and quit. Don't give up on the battle. Don't declare victory too soon, and certainly don't declare defeat. The second thing is this. In all of these circumstances, David knew who his God was. In every struggle, in every battle, the real issue is, who is your God in this? Who is your God in this? If you can say, my God is a strong and mighty tower. My God is my friend. My God is the lover of my soul. My God is my shield and defender. My God is my shepherd. My God walks with me. My God is with me even in the valley of the shadow of death. When I, when I first went to Ghana, it was very difficult times in Ghana. There was a communist military dictator there? Named J.J. Rawlings. He was lethal. It was a very bad time. The borders were closed. There was no food in the country. It was very scary. Military checkpoints everywhere. They'd stop and roust you out and empty your car. I saw a man beaten senseless with a with a pole one time by three soldiers. And we were going to try to help, and was, they threatened us with guns. It was a terrible, terrible time. Very scary. And one, two guys came in one Sunday with a with machetes and attacked the pastor of local uh, Pentecostal church where we were and hurt him pretty bad. And I was talking to another pastor, and I said, what are you going to do if they come in your church? Have you trained people to defend you? He said, I have told my people to stand still. He said, if they come with guns or with machetes, I've told my people, do not get between me and them. I will not have one of you lay your life down for me. He said, somebody has already done that. <clears throat> know who your God is. And then finally, know what his relationship is with you. And thinking about this message on battles, and struggles, I reflected back. You know, I never hidden it from you. I, I had a misspent youth, my, my elder brother and I both and he never really pulled out of it. As you know, he went to prison, and, but I had a difficult youth. We were in a roadhouse between Baltimore and Washington one time, a really tough little place, and that, we had a guy with us who was pretty stoned and a, a, just a kind of a bad guy all around. We were there, the three boys together, and another guy came in, and he was a great big guy, but really quiet. I don't think I'd ever heard him say five words. And he had with him a beautiful girl. She must have been from out of town. None of us have seen her. Well, this guy that was with us pretty high, and he said, Man, look at that girl with Brooke. I said, Now, Danny, you better leave that girl alone. He said, I'm going back there. He said, That girl is too good to be with Brooke. I'm going back there and get that girl. I said, Danny, this is a bad idea. He went back to the back booth where they were sitting, and he just pushed himself into that booth with that girl and put his arm around her. He said, now, baby, what is your name? I've never seen you before. And I heard Brooke say, don't do that. It penetrated the length of that roadhouse. I could hear it. Danny could not hear it. (laughs) He leaned over to her and he said, i tell you what you do. He said, you give me one kiss, just one kiss. And he started pulling her close. And I I heard Brooke say, don't. It penetrated me. I was, I was at the other end of that roadhouse. And I said to my friend, we better get back there. It was too late. Brooke jerked Danny up and punched him and knocked him backwards through a plate glass window. In the movies, people fall through plate glass windows and it just all shatters and ice and falls on the ground. I just want to say to you, this is not real life. The jagged edges of that window cut Danny. He was bleeding like a stuck pig. He was just blood everywhere, one ear hanging loose, and we're laying out in the parking lot, totally unconscious. And I saw the manager of the roadhouse reaching for the phone. I said, oh, my God, the cops are coming. We ran out. The two of us, we grabbed Danny, threw him up, half drunk and unconscious in the backseat of the car. We drove off trying to get out of there before the cops could come. My friend was driving. I leaned over the back seat, slapping his face. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. He finally came to and I said, what's the matter with you? What is the matter with you? Couldn't you hear him say, don't? Didn't you hear him? He said, don't. Couldn't you hear him? He said, Mark, I heard him. He said, I underestimated the depth of the relationship. (laughs) That, my dear friends, is the greatest of all satanic mistakes. He can attack us. He can come against us. He can assault us. He can accuse us. He can isolate us. He can attack with loneliness and betrayal and fear and loss and grief. His one great mistake is he's underestimated the depth of the relationship. I don't know what battle you're in, and I don't know which battle you're going to face next year. What I know is the Lord is a strong and mighty tower, and the righteous run into him, and they're safe. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. Not because I'm smarter than the devil, but because I know who my God is. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at DrMarkRutland or visit his website, DrMarkRutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.